Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Coming up on the payoff, Sober Motivation is an Instagram, I don't know if it's a handle or a site, but it is a force of nature. And it is run by Brad McLeod, who has an incredible story of recovery himself. First of all, his Sober Motivation podcast is incredible. He gets some of the best guests out there, and he makes me yearn to want to be like him, and that's not a lie. He gets guys that that I definitely can't get, um, and he is just... He's got an incredible message, and he's such a humble guy uh, that faced many felonies or, or was facing many years in prison as a result of felonies, as a result of drug addiction. And now he touches millions of people. Again, Sober Motivation is the Instagram. That's where everything is. That's where he says to go. We got that in the show notes. Uh, another sad news, uh, if you're close to me, you know that my brother Kevin passed away about a week ago after... Uh, cancer just literally took over his body. He is still here with us in spirit. I can promise you that because I feel it and I see it in other people. And uh, it fucking sucks not having him here personally. That's for sure. But uh, I'm going to get through it with you guys. And I'm going to do something to celebrate him and talk about him in about a week or so. So uh, look forward to that. And I can promise you one thing. That will never change. Kevin Souza. Okay, Jim, you're good to go. Okay, that was Mike, our, our producer, Rusty, trusty Mike. He's the man. Um, yeah, Mike was a huge. <laughs> Mike was a huge help. He's got a. I I like. I guess it was 2021 in January, and uh, you know I'm here in Texas, and I I'm, I'm I saw Mike, and I knew that there was a podcast network in town, and I wanted to. I've been dying to like you, get my message out. Uh, you know, because that's really all. I, there were a lot of people like you who helped me when I was in the wilderness. Um, and there were, I found that my first kind of foray into sobriety or trying to get there was there were books, you know, there were, there were tapes, there were interviews with people who had gotten sober and it seemed like it was mm -hmm. a, a fruitful life, but I couldn't, I couldn't find the fucking door. You know, I mean, I, I was, I was in big time trouble. What moved you before we get to to your story? What moved you to start up this public profile, or not so much your public profile, but to start up a public platform for people that wanted to get sober? Yeah, I mean, the whole idea behind sober motivation, I kind of share a little bit when I share my story is too that I never felt seen in life. So that was a big part of me is when I wanted to create this platform. I wanted to give people a a place and a voice like people that otherwise people might not be interested in their stories and give them a place where they could be celebrated, where they could share their stories, not only to help themselves, but that they were sharing their stories to help other people see what's possible. I'm a huge believer that stories change lives because if we can identify or relate with somebody else and, and that they were able to get through it, this little like glimpse of hope becomes alive in us that if they could come back from that, 
maybe it's not so bad for me and maybe there's a way that I can pull myself out of it. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword in a way. And I just want to give people that because like, like you mentioned too, going back when I got sober, it was like, it was like a rehab, which I never even really knew existed in a sense. And then there was fellowship groups. There were celebrate recovery groups, which are all incredible, like powerful resources. But for people to find out about this stuff and, and to get involved with everything, it you know, it, there's a lot of barriers and challenges that people face. I thought, you know, what about we share stories, you know, and the craziest thing about it is, right, people see it now. We're close to probably a million followers between all the platforms. And uh, what people fail to realize sometimes, Pete, is that this started out with one follower. My first follower, I think, was my wife, <laughs> you know, so. This wasn't um, something that, and at first it was really hard to get stories because it was so small. People were like, I could just share it on my own page or platform. And they they probably had more people following and would get more interaction and stuff. So <laughs> it was a tough go at first. And then I caught, I got, I got lucky, man. I got lucky a couple breaks and, you know, a couple people gave me a shot to, to share about what we were doing and, and what we, uh, you know what my vision was for it, but it always changes. Who were those always. couple? Who were those couple uh, breaks early on? Yeah, I mean, we, I had, I reached out, got reached out to from Good Morning America, and I would say that was probably one of the biggest ones. And then the New York Times reached out, and I developed a relationship with a writer there, um, who supervised a bunch of writers, and you know they just became interested in sort of people sharing their stories and the transformation that was happening. Right, people. The, at the bottom and then they're graduating college and I love they're, the they're pictures doing this. Do. I, I still, everybody loves the, uh, you know, you see that everybody loves a makeover, right? If you're watching some, some BS television show, uh -huh. but like to see, you know, you do a lot of times, Brad, the side by side on the Instagram stories or on the posts. And it's just every time that throws, uh, goes through my feed, I'm like, wow, like this thing works, you know, recovery works. Exactly. All right, I want I want to get into your story a little bit. So you're you're in. First of all, I know you're. Uh, I know the guy's name was Mr. Riddle, who used to make you read the twelve steps, or Doctor Riddle, who, who before in 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 that rehab you went to. Uh, and yeah. And so I love your familiarity with that the found the foundation and and you know that obviously the twelve steps were part of your recovery. But I want to talk about the whole thing. You're in Canada now. Did you grow up in Canada? Yeah, I, mean, I was born in Canada. I moved to, I actually moved, to, you're in Texas. I moved to Waco when I was Dude, six. I live in Waco. <laughs> there you go, buddy. Small world. <laughs> I'm right between Dallas and Austin and Waco. How long were you here for? It was only a couple of years. My okay. mom met my stepdad. They used to work at my, because my mom was, uh, went to school to be a nurse. She had my brother and I when she was 16. Wow. So she had twins at 16 and she grew up here. My grandparents looked after my brother and I for the most part. And then I think my mom wanted some independence and to start her life. And um, she went back to school. She you know, got her nursing um, stuff done and then got a job down there at Hillcrest, I believe sure. it was yeah, called. Yeah. Okay. How about that? Yeah. yeah small I world. Did that. So when yeah. did you it... go ahead? Yeah. And then she met my stepdad there, huge Baylor fan. He went to Baylor and, you know, lives in and dies by the the Baylor football and sports and everything. So, so where did you where did you guys go from there? Yeah, so I lived there for a bit. I mean, the transition was tough though, right? Because in Canada, here my mom was was doing her thing, finishing high school, finishing college, 
my grandparents used to look after my brother and I, right? So like the, what I always try to bring up to here, because what made this transition so hard is my experience with my grandparents. And I don't know if all grandparents are like this, but they really, they really don't say no. I mean, you kind of, you know, you go with the flow and they have a lot of time, right? They were retired and they would make a lot of time for you and a lot of attention and stuff. And then all of that would kind of change when my, my mom, single parent, we moved down, you know, we lived in a five bedroom house and, a nice neighborhood up here. And then we moved to a two bedroom apartment. We had no yard anymore. My brother and I shared a bedroom with bunk beds and, and mom was working as a nurse. So when you start out, I mean, you have to work your way up. You're working weekends, evenings. And we were with sitters and stuff a lot of the time, right? It was just us. We went from everything we had here to moving there. And that's when I really like, when I reflect back to like the anxiety picked up, the uncomfortable in my own skin started to, to creep in. How, how old were you around when you when when this happens? When you I was moved, around six. You're around six. Yeah. And you start to develop a little bit as as a very young young man, uh, and it's tough not having mom around. Um, you know, a, a single parent. Do you do you look back now and see some of the behaviors? Like I I I see some of my you know alcoholic addict tendencies even all the way back to when I was a kid. Do you have anything anything that happened or any way you felt? That looking back now with the crystal, uh, crystal clear 2020, it's like, wow, I, I, I kind of had it going when I was a kid. Just behaviors. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I was always looking to escape the way I felt. For sure. Early on. I mean, ever since I can remember, that's what I was trying to do. I didn't know how to I didn't know how to talk about it or or put a finger on anything. So I was just looking to escape. And then it wasn't, you know, I mean, it wasn't until, you know, obviously years later that drugs and alcohol became available. But up until then, it was extreme dysfunction, and I was diagnosed with ADHD as well, and put on Adderall. And yeah, how did that grab that you? How cool. did that grab you as a kid? Which one, the ADHD? Yeah, yeah. I mean, getting prescribed Adderall. Here's my story, Brad. I always tell people I was a kid. I was out of control. They put me on uh, Adderall. I was crazy ADHD, and I remember mm. going to the principal's office to take it. My mom would give it to me in the morning, and then at lunch I would take another pill. And I go to the principal's office to get it. And I remember, I can remember taking it and feeling good in a way, like feeling like, okay, I, I, I like the way it made me feel. I really did. And I had this impression that, okay, now I got to take something to be a hundred percent. Like there was a, there was a, a mental block that I came up with early. Like, I'm not good enough. I need to take this or else I won't be as good as everybody else. Any similar feeling like that for you? Yeah, I mean, the Adderall, what it did, though, is it just made me made it really hard for me to talk to people. So I just kind of felt like I was in my own little world. Yeah, I wasn't getting in trouble. Like, that was the problem, right? I was getting in a lot of trouble. I was getting suspended at school. I was failing at school. I didn't get I didn't care about doing well in school or anything like that. I was just looking to just fit in. Then I got put on the Adderall and like it served its purpose. I wasn't getting in any trouble, but I didn't have a social life. I didn't have any friends. I was just like a loner through, you know, throughout middle school years. And I just really didn't have a voice and I still didn't do well in school. Like I was just really quiet and like probably like kind of the odd dude out, right? The weird kind of <laughs> Total quiet vision. kid. What then? I <clears throat> and then what I figured out is one day I missed the dose. One day after a bunch of years, because I just took it like, I mean, the psychiatrist, the doctor, my parents, like, you just got to take this, right? I had no idea about it. Everybody, everybody um, had great intentions yeah, about it. And I, I missed taking it, man. And I, when I missed, when I missed that day at school, I just remember I had this different 
vibe going on, man. And I felt like I could talk to people and I felt like I might be interesting. But what happened there, though, is that things got things went overboard. So I just pretended like I was taking it, but I didn't take it. And then all that behavioral stuff. Yeah, that's impulse kinda, came. Yes, exactly. And then shit just exploded, right? Because then now I'm getting suspended. I'm, I'm skipping class. I'm being a class clown. I'm just acting up. I'm being extremely disrespectful of, in the classroom. And, and I can't focus. And I'm just getting in trouble. And like everybody around me thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. But when I look back, like it was just a big disaster. It wasn't funny at all. It wasn't funny, but I was just craving for belonging, man. You know what I mean? I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to have a purpose. I just wanted to feel you wanted seen, to be seen. and heard. And- yeah, exactly. Like you said earlier. Yeah. So when did you, that's, that's, that's kind of what I was asking, right? Like the behavior startup, like the lies, whether it's you're taking it or you're not taking it. Like you just start to, you know, that's, I look at some of those behaviors. It's just like, I'm full of shit around a substance in one way or another. Right. Like how, how did you start to. You know, when did alcohol or drugs come into your life for the first time? Yeah, well, that wasn't until after I went to that rehab where I met Mr. Riddle. So <laughs> I went to so my, I ended up, I ended up in a psych ward because I was suicidal. And this and is I, before this, my, this I, is before any drugs or alcohol. Yeah, this is all before. How old were you? I never, when I ended up in the psych ward yeah, for the, the first time. Yeah, the place I, you were seventeen. And what behaviors led to that? That was codependency with a relationship. That was a big part of it. So I was codependent on this relationship. And it was just, I mean, you look back and you're like, my goodness, what a train wreck. Well, but at it. the time, it's it. everything. Sign me up, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. At the time, it's everything, right? And and it was just not good, right? So we'd break up, man. And I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't handle the rejection. I had just felt rejected in in from everything in life, right? I never did well in school. My peers would celebrate that. They were good at sports. I was never really good at sports. I did play a bit of soccer, but I was the only person cut from the, from the grade eight soccer team. Yeah. Like the only, everybody else made the team and like, I wasn't good by any means, but I wasn't, you know, I could have, um, you know, hung out on the bench or something. Right. I I could have got the water. I could have done something. I could have been of some use. Um, I I think, right. That's catastrophic for a kid. Yeah. At the time though, I didn't, I didn't even blink an eye, dude. I mean, I didn't even, I wasn't even able to put the pieces, but you know, when I look back, I, I remember my mom picking me up and I was like, Oh, you know, like, yeah, I didn't make the team. And I'm telling all this, the, these lies, right. To kind of make it make sense to me. Like, yeah, there's a lot of good players. And there was just one other guy. I mean, and, and he was him and I were probably the same caliber soccer player, but see, he wasn't getting suspended in school all the time. And he wasn't, you know, causing all the problems. Right. So like, I just wasn't going to be a good fit not because of how well I played soccer or not, because I just wasn't going to be a positive thing for the environment. You know, yeah. I just couldn't follow rules like rules. I, I didn't, they didn't apply to me. They didn't apply to me. Yeah. I didn't follow any, you know, <laughs> even today I still don't follow some, yeah, you know, I still, I still live a bit outside the box. Right. Yeah. But, but then there's, you know, when you're younger, there's a few specific things you have to, you have to do, right. Go to school, apply yourself, do well, you know, be respectful. And that stuff was really, really hard for me to do. So when I was 17, things went sideways with this girlfriend. I got arrested my first time at 16. So I was on probation for this arrest. 
went into a garage and took golf clubs. We also took stuff from Dick's Sporting Goods oh. and sold it. At, I mean, sold it to a Play It Again Sports where they take your ID and it's <laughs> yeah. a $600 baseball bat. So obviously, like, that didn't work out. And then I had all the crappy golf clubs we threw behind my parents' house. We thought that was another great idea. And then when the cops came to inquire about the baseball bat we sold, they had to look around. And behind the fence, like, on the neighbor's property – was a bunch of like, oh, I mean, it was just looking back at Pete. It's just madness, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, so we got charged with with a bunch of bunch of things for break and enter, you know, going into um, going into people's garages and taking stuff. That's a felony. So right? that was, yeah, that was a felony charge. Yeah, they they got reduced down to misdemeanors. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, your first time in trouble, you're you know, as long as it's not, uh, you know, too much, you'll you'll get caught a break. But it costs a lot of money for a lawyer and sure. go through that. And um, I remember the first because they have to book you into jail too. So at 16 in North Carolina, you're you're technically an adult. And you what, uh, what, what part of North criminal. Carolina are you living at this time? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm living in this suburb called Apex, the okay. peak of good living. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful place. I mean, beautiful place. Now it's now it's a lot bigger, man. We used to live off of Apex Barbecue Road. I, I, I love. Mean, I always see the Carolina Hurricanes gear with you. So now it's all coming together. Yeah, yeah, I love man. What a every time I wear her, I got one on right now. But every time I wear it out, I'm in, I'm obviously near Toronto, so every oh. Leaf fan, they're like, "Yeah, what happened to Carolina?" It's like, dude, I watched the series. I know what happened. <laughs> I don't need you to remind me at the Apple Store. Like, I'm not buying anything today, man. I don't yeah. need you to remind me. But um, yeah, so I'm in North Carolina too. At this point, my parents wanted to move to a place where it was, you know, more four season type deal, mm-hmm. and um, so we went. Yeah, so I, I, that's when um that's the first time you, you get know arrested. all that stuff yeah yeah uh, the first time I get arrested there's all that stuff going on man the probation officer was just on my case like she was good looking back I think she meant well but she was bit, like you know this is probate you know here in Canada buddy it's so different I know probation officers here and um, they don't have guns they don't have this jacket with the big yellow writing on the back this is probation they're not power tripping. There, you know, there it was for for her, and I had done wrong, so I'm not like saying that I didn't deserve any of this. What I did wasn't right, and there was punishment that was going to follow. But she would come to the school, having her sidearm on her, her jacket. I'm already, you know, feeling weird and really struggling <laughs> at school. Skipping, pull me out of class, ask me questions in the hallway. I would have to do drug tests, right? And I think this might have been really a good thing, Pete. Yeah. Why well, I never got into doing drugs and stuff. It, at that age is because I knew I had to do these tests. And like in, in, in when I was 16 too, they watch you. Oh yeah. Do it in the wash. <laughs> you, 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 you have, a key, right. So there's no fooling around. Um, so that might've helped me out in a sense with that, but you know, that was a tough thing, right? Like it was still tough for me to put all this together. They, I had to take my medication. I had to, you know, I mean, there was a lot of rules that I had to follow or else it's like you, you go to jail basically, but yeah. I got checked into, the jail, ma'am, and um, I walk in this this room. It's a cell, a room. It's all glass. Halfway up is concrete block, and then there's like some plexiglass. It's not like bars or anything like Alcatraz, right? Yeah. So I walk in there, and there's this guy in a corner, young fella, you know. And I'm 16. I have no idea what I'm doing, like no idea. And he's crying, crying, crying. He's trying to make phone calls and phone calls, and like they always say, you get a phone call, but. The phone's in there, like, unless you know what you're doing, like, these are not easy phones to navigate. <laughs> it's not like you did, 
you just dial your your buddy's number and it just rings right through, right? Yeah. Um. So he's calling people and I'm, he's sobbing and I'm just like, man, what's going on, right? So I asked this fellow. I said, hey, you know, what's up? Like, I never should have done this. And I learned later, like, you know, later down the road, like, don't ever, you don't ever ask anybody what they're in jail for. That's rule number one. He had, he mentioned to me that he had, he, he was being charged with killing his girlfriend in New York City. And he was trying to take the train system down to Florida and that Amtrak train, they caught him in Raleigh. Yeah. And I was like, holy smokes. Like, how? You know, right then I kind of had this 30 second conversation with myself like, dude, how did I end up here? Like, seriously, just fooling around a little bit, trying to be cool with the boys. How did I end up in this spot to where I'm like in the jail now? You know, it's nine stories high. I'm down on the intake floor. I mean, once you go in there, you're I mean, you're equal you're, you're to everybody in the else. System. It doesn't and matter. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. You're in, you're in there. Right. So I was like. I swore I was going to change, Pete. 16 years old, man, I was going to change. I, my parents bailed me out. I had everything figured out. I was going to make changes in my life. And, like, it stuck for a couple of days, and I was back at it. So that's kind of the story of the first time I got arrested. And then you end up in the psych ward because of this relationship. Did you find yourself treating the early on? I, I, I noticed this even about myself today. I have to be careful. Like, I'll treat relationships like a drug. Did you, looking back with that relationship that imploded, that kind of sent you reeling, were you were you treating that almost as though it was a drug? Yeah, I mean, you could say, yeah, you could say that that was sort of a relief or a distraction from myself. Yeah, yeah. So when you're in the psych ward, is this the one in t when you're in Tennessee? No, this is uh, UNC. Okay. This is UNC Chapel Hill, so the hospital. They kept me for three days. It was nothing, man. I mean, I didn't have any, I, I wasn't aware. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were trying to be helpful. So many people in my life. Right. So I went, I seen psychiatrists, therapists, doctors, I mean, learning centers. I mean, I had so many interventions. My grandfather who, who passed this is all behavioral re related pretty much at this point. This is all behavioral. Yeah. yeah all of it. Yeah. And a uh, mental health stuff too, that I just wasn't able to really put a finger on to get help with. You know, I think I put a lot of people in a guessing game, like to yeah. try to guess to, you know, guess and check. Right. And that's a big part of what, it kind of was, but my grandfather, he used to call me the million dollar man. Um, <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> how much money you cost everybody? Yeah, just with all the <laughs> interventions and everything. And he used to, and for later down, just bring him right now, bringing it up. He used to also call me man without a country because to, you know, later in the, in the journey there, I ended up getting deported from the U.S. in a lifetime ban. And, and um, we were unsure. He was unsure at the time if I would be accepted back in Canada, which I mean, you got to live somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> But he would say, you're the man with a, you know, you're the man without a country. Right. And I'm like, gosh, you know, I mean, imagine that, imagine that. Any alcohol and drug but, addiction uh, in your, in your family outside of you? Uh, I mean, there's rumors of stuff here and there, but okay. not like, you know, immediately. Right. I'm sure, you know, I mean, if you look at the statistics, I'm sure there's somebody out there who, sure. you know, has at some point. Right. But like, was it something that I was told about that? Like, Hey, you know, so-and-so is this or that? No, I mean, drugs probably not, but I mean, my family gets pretty big. Like the further you go back, it's a pretty big family. My grandmother has 15 brothers and sisters yeah, or had 15 brothers and sisters, you know? So, I mean, that kind of spreads things out. So if you go to like cousins and all that, like I'm sure there's, yeah, there's definitely people. That when, are, when did you, you know, start to, to take the substances that would alter your mind and your state of being 
That was until after that rehab. So I went to that rehab after this. I went to the psych ward again. Uh-huh. And second time I went to the psych ward, I mean, things were just out of control, chaotic. I mean, even worse than before with the mental health. I was I was depressed all the time. I was running away from home. I wasn't doing well in the classroom. I was getting suspended from school. I was causing, I mean, Pete, you name it, buddy. Yeah. I was causing problems. Yeah, yeah, I um, I, I went again. I talked with my school counselor and I said, I can't do this anymore. You know, and I had this little plan. I didn't really what I did. You know, when I look back, man, I didn't even want that to be the play. But I was like, I didn't know how else to communicate it. And I think that's how it was. I didn't know how to say it. And I was worried what people would think. You know, if I tell people honestly what I'm struggling with, like, What's going to be the response? And a lot of people I did open up with over the years, like they just want to give me solutions. Just do this, do that, do this. And I was just like, now when I look back and I'm like, man, that guy I is scared, you know, teenager I was, I really didn't want solutions. I just wanted someone to be like, shit, like that's heavy stuff. I hear you. Yeah. I just want to be heard, man. You know, it's, uh, the whole story is going to go back to that. Yeah. I just wanted to be heard, seen and, and feel like, what I had to say mattered because I always got the feedback that it didn't matter. You know, I mean, academics, I wasn't good. I was never asked my opinion. I was never asked to share my project. I was in, in, I mean, I get it. Like it wasn't, you know, this stuff wasn't good. So I get why the teacher didn't want it up at the front of the class. Yeah. I get that now, but at the time, you know, sometimes in life, I really did what I thought was the best work I could do. Mm-hmm. And I would do this best work and I would still feel like, it wasn't good enough. Like, so why do anything? You know, I would just leave exams. Uh, the anxiety would get so high and I just wouldn't know the answer. And it'd be the final exam at the end of the year for English. And I would just leave halfway through like, and go to the community in the world. Center. Yeah. I go to the community center and shoot hoops and all my buddies would show up after and they say, man, you got through that quick. You must've really studied. I said, Oh yeah, boys. I was, I was <laughs> studying. I didn't study for two seconds. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> You know, so I mean, that just kind of had fuel to the fire. And my, my parents and I were clashing a lot on that. Like, they wanted me to do well, right? They were like, you got to do well in school. I mean, you got to at least graduate high school. They didn't put pressure on me to, like, go to college and be, be anything fancy. But, you know, can you at least get a C? Like, if you do that, like, we'll be over the moon happy if you just show up and you can get a C and, like, you can go to high school and, and you know, graduate. But so I end up in a psych ward again after talking with that counselor. This time they hold me for a little bit longer. I was there for like seven days. After the fifth day, they're like, we have to take your shoes because you're a flight risk. I'm like, okay. I I mean, I wasn't even thinking about that until they brought it up. <laughs> then I was like, okay, well, something's brewing. So my parents had this guy come in and work for this behavioral treatment facility about 90 minutes away. And it was a voluntary program. If you agreed to go, you could go there 90 days, live there and I was just like, dude, this is the craziest thing in the world. I, I don't need to go to a program. I need to get back to my life. And, uh, you know, but like looking back, I mean, there wasn't much going on, but I thought there was. We'll get back to this conversation in a second. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Did you know you could be putting oil and chemicals in your coffee? I love coffee creamer, but I don't think I've ever turned the bottle around to actually see what's inside. When I did, I found out many of my favorite creamers contain ingredients I would never intentionally add to my coffee cup, like canola oil, dipotassium phosphate, ew, and artificial flavors. 
Laird Superfood all started when big wave surfer Laird Hamilton needed morning fuel that could allow him to spend the entire day chasing the ultimate wave. He couldn't find anything in the market that met his ingredient standards, so made himself the ultimate plant-based creamer. Laird Superfood started and launched its first product, Original Superfood Creamer, in 2015. Laird Superfoods contain no artificial flavors, colors, or additives, and no sugars from highly refined corn syrup. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel in to your routine. All Laird products are also made of all natural whole food ingredients and they are crafted from the highest quality all natural real food ingredients. Are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code BOO at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. I'm your puzzle-loving pal and I'm going to tell you about my latest obsession, Wongo Puzzles. These things are the real deal, folks. They're high quality, handcrafted, and perfect for anyone who loves a good challenge but doesn't want to dedicate their entire kitchen table to puzzles for a week. Trust me, I've been there. (laughs) I might still be there. But I got one of these actually for Christmas. I loved it. I did it, and I was so proud of myself. And they have all these cool designs, and you need to go to wongopuzzles.com and use our discount, BHH. You get 10% off, and I really want to know if you'll order one of these puzzles. How would you think about it? Because it's so fun, and I need to order like five. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Souza. I love smoothies, but I don't love smoothie bar prices. With my BlendJet 2 Portable Blender, I can make smoothie bar quality beverages for a fraction of the price. BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita at the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. It lasts for 15-plus blends and recharges quickly with a USB-C. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap, and you're good to go. With over 30-plus colors and patterns to choose from, there's a BlendJet 2 to complement just about any style. I like the urban camo print myself. So what are you waiting for? Go to BlendJet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code PETE12. That way you'll get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use the code PETE12. Remember, you get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Cure hydration. If you are obsessed with your hydration like I am, this may be something good for you. This is something that is so easy Forget about the Gatorade. That just dehydrates you even more. And if you don't like the taste of coconut water, try Cure Hydration. You can go to my offer link. It is zen, Z-E-N, dot A-I slash B-H-H 20. This is vegan. It's no added sugars. It's just a little packet you could put in your water. Or if you're really smart during happy hour, you could put it into your Tito's. It is just as effective as an IV drip. And it's... If you do not like the taste of water, it's not as boring as water, not as sugary as the sports drink. And if you're an athlete, it'll give you the best performance. Or if you just get brain frog or headaches because you do not stay hydrated. Brain frog? Brain fog. 
<laughs> the solution brain. is cure hydration. So go to that link, enter the code. You can go to my offer link. It is zen, Z-E-N dot A-I slash B-H-H 20. Cure hydration. So then they they upped the ante a bit. So then they I ended up getting checked into that program. You're talking about Peninsula Village, which yeah. is a lockdown unit, and um, you can't leave. You can't just leave. They'll restrain you. It's the unit's locked. Three months you lived in a lock unit in a basement, chicken wire on the window. What the hell is going through your that, mind as as a young man? <laughs> I was pissed. Yeah, my parents. Initially, I was I was really upset that my folks had abandoned. I had pulled the trigger on this one. Yeah, yeah. And I talked with them after like two weeks, right on the phone. And I said, "You got, you know." I thought in my mind, right up until that phone call, it was really hard. But I was like, "I'll just talk with my parents. I'll tell them, you know, what it's like here, right?" Um, and they'll just pull the plug. You know, they'll say, "All right, you know, you can come home." And um, I talked with them for a couple minutes, and that was not happening. It was uh, the only way you could talk with your parents was with a, it was with your family therapist on the phone. Mm-hmm. Like you guys were in the same room and you called your parents and um, buddy for the first time in my life, they were like, we ain't helping you. You're on your own. Like You got to figure this out. And I was like, Oh, you know, so I was upset, man. I'd always been able to kind of wiggle my way yeah. you know, through stuff. They would be upset with me, but, but they would, you know, they would come around, right? They would come around. I'd be able to manipulate the situation or, you know, sometimes genuinely I did desire to change and, and I, I put in effort and things didn't always work out months later, but I, I would try. So yeah, man, I was taken back. I'm like, Holy smokes, man, this, they hired a private security company to drive me to this program um, in Knoxville, Tennessee, which by the way, you escaped from momentarily, right? From the transport people. Yeah, I did. Yeah. (laughs) That was bad. I actually emailed them like two years ago and um, and thanked them. And I was surprised the lady was still doing it. I sent her an email. I said, look, you're not going to remember me. She did. You remembered <laughs> me. She's like, I'll never forget that. And um, it was just full circle, man. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of emotional thinking about it because um, it was just, yeah, it was just weird, right? Yeah, I mean it's that's what we do. That's what happens. There's you know there's chaos wherever wherever we go. When uh, when you get to a certain state, whether it's mental health, you know, or whether it's substance abuse. I, I mean, some at some point I got to a point where school's out. It's just like there were, nothing was going to stop me from doing what I wanted to do. Especially when to go back to what you're saying, I realized that I couldn't use the silver tongue to talk my way out of it. I remember thinking like, wow, this is, this is bad because everybody knows that I'm that guy. So I'm persona non grata wherever I go. And for me, that's when I just would, it got even worse, right? With the self-medication and with the alcohol and drug abuse. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So when you're, so So I left this. Yeah. You, so you left the place. Go ahead. So how long were you there in Tennessee? 90 days. No, that was like a year, okay. 11 months to 12 months. Yeah, wow. so you, you stay in the basement program for a bit, and that's where the whole thing with Mr. Riddle came in. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. so I was I was just hard-headed. I didn't, I didn't want to follow the rules and stuff, and that's what you had to do to move on to the next level of the program. And um, 
I just wasn't getting it. Everybody else was graduating, man. A couple months, one to two months in the special treatment unit, the basement was what most people did. Some guys could figure it out in three weeks. I mean, they just were like, yeah, I mean, I want this thing. I want to make changes. And they would just buy in and, and off they went. I just was holding on for dear life. I'm like, yeah, screw these people. Yeah. Like I'm not doing it. I am not doing schoolwork. And I'm not doing what they asked me to do. And I'm not participating. And I mean, that went on for months, dude. And like, how old were you? That hard headed. Like 17. Okay. All right. Wow. Yeah. That, and I think, you know, my rationale was like, hey, if I just kind of do nothing, my parents will get the feedback that I'm doing nothing. And they'll be like, oh, this was just a waste of time, a waste of money. Yeah. And we'll just bring them back home and stuff. And like, nah, I mean, little did I know these guys were going to outweigh me. And I didn't know that. I thought I could out, I thought I could outweigh them. Yeah. And, uh, they outweighed me. Mr. Riddle told me the one time, and they never get personal with you. They never talk with you about your problems, none of that stuff. They're there for security, and they're there to keep order. And they are very intelligent people. Some of them went to the program. Most of them are like uh, psychologists, not psychologists, but psychology majors. Mm-hmm. I found this out later down the road. Very, very intelligent people you know, with behavioral stuff and everything like that. And, um, but they never would get personal, never try to solve your problems. It was kind of up to you to figure it out. He told me, he said, Brad, you get, you're not getting it, man. You know? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. Look where I'm at, dude. I, I, you know, tell, I, I realize this, Mr. Riddle, I realize this. And then he said, you got to just fake it till you make it. And I'm like, dude, I don't get what that means. You know, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, this is just more of this garbage, you know? And then a couple of days later it clicked, man. I said, what is this guy talking? Maybe this guy. Who I loved, but I hated, you know, because I brought up the story too about the 12 steps. Anytime yeah. I had to ra- raise my hand to ask a question, I would have to recite the 12 steps. And it, and I didn't have a book or anything to read them from. It was, was, he printed me out a paper. He let me keep the paper for like a day and then it was gone. So I didn't get it right, you know, <laughs> for like the first week. So if I wanted to ask a question, I couldn't ask any questions. I couldn't do, you know what I mean? If I had to go to the bathroom, I'd have to wait for the scheduled bathroom times. I couldn't. Yeah, you said my that. It was, it was three minutes to number two and 90 seconds for number one. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, everything was time. Seven minutes to shower. Yeah. So so you're, yeah, you're, at, every- this, you're at this place for a year. What happens after after you get out of there? How do things ultimately get worse, I guess? Yeah, so I was doing good. I mean, I actually got into college and I was got a job and I started dating this new this new girlfriend and I yeah, got my first apartment. I got a car. Uh, my folks helped me out with a lot of stuff and I was feeling really good. Like my life completely turned around. It was one of the best things that ever happened in my life. I went in there uh, bitter and upset and I came out there like feeling like I was truly on top of the world. I mean, I just spent 12 months looking in the mirror. Yeah. Um and really really fell in love with what I saw, you know, through hard work and oh, everything. Yeah. I mean, we hammered it every day. And um, after a couple of months, though, I started to get out of my routine. I started to get out of things I was doing, you know, and that's the craziest thing. I did the same stuff every day for a year, and it only took a couple months for me to just write it off. Like, yeah. I don't need to do that. That was just for there. That doesn't apply out here. Like, it's different out here. I've got other stuff going on, and I want to hang out with my friends and so I had some buddies over. We start. I started drinking beers, and I didn't see any problem with it. You know, and at first it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a problem. I mean, it was great. You know, I mean, we were going to parties, we were drinking. I was, I was getting outside of myself. I was being able to escape the anxiety and feeling like I, you know, I struggle with that. Meet people, talk to people. It was like, man, yeah, like this is great. Um, 
Then what happened is I had a poker night over at my place. The, that girlfriend and I broke up, and a buddy of mine moved in, and I had a poker night. Uh-huh. And at this poker night, we're just we're just kicking back. We're drinking some beers. I mean, we're just hanging out. You know I mean? Things are good. And this guy from this restaurant pulls out this pill bottle. Uh, you know, it didn't make any sense to me, Pete. I didn't know any about any of this stuff. I didn't know about drugs, even though I was in that program. And a lot of people there, a lot of the guys struggle with addiction. We never talked about drugs. We focused on, you know, the behaviors, yeah. the feelings, you know, all that type of stuff. We never sat around and reminisced about drugs or any. I never had any education on it. Except for the D.A.R.E. program, which I couldn't even remember other <laughs> yeah. than the T-shirt with the, with the lion on it or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. He pulls out these pills. These are Percocet. I found out later, and I get one from him, five bucks for a long story short. Oh, man. I mean, I was in heaven, buddy. Everything I worried about, every little voice inside of my head was gone. And I had that experience before because when I busted my ass at the treatment program, I was in love with myself and the voices were quiet or I knew how to work through them, but that was a lot of work. This was yes. like a $5 bill. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was, yeah. I was like, dude, like my parents could have saved all the money and we could have just got hooked up on this, you know? So that's what I was thinking. <laughs> but it's funny, Brad. And I, things I, wanna, happen- I just want to stop you right there for anybody that's listening to this or, you know, is, I mean, you, you just heard it right there. Like the hard work you can do on yourself, whether it's in, a 12-step program or hardcore like therapeutic psychotherapy, that can make you feel the way that alcohol and drugs make you feel. Now, for me, it was flipped. You know, I was so seduced by pills, alcohol, drugs, and then I got sober. And then the more I worked the program, I was like, holy shit, this is the same feeling I got from that stuff. You know, like, why wouldn't I want to continue to do this work but it's amazing how and it's hard to 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 get through to somebody who's got one day right and just wants to jump out of their skin but like that's really interesting i've never heard that brad the reverse right you take the percocet and you say this felt like when i was doing all that work on myself yeah yeah that's crazy so 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 back to the story so you start to take this and you say hey mom and dad we could have done this for five bucks rather than me being the million dollar man and and then what, yeah. what happens after that? Yeah, I mean, things just picked up from there. And I had this idea. I started to research like I wanted more of it, but I didn't have the connection. Every 97.2% of the people I hung out with were really good people. Uh-huh. They weren't into this stuff. I mean, they drank like they were in college. To, where were you they partied. Uh, Wake Tech Community College. Uh, where's that? That's in Raleigh. Okay, okay. So you're 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 still yeah. in North Carolina, so you still kind of have like your group of people. Yeah, yeah. so I'm still hanging out with some of the the guys from high school. I mean, we had, I mean, we we had a blast, man. You know, things were good until it wasn't good. You yeah. know, that's really my story, man. And I hear a lot of people they'll they'll share like, oh, it was you know it was good and it was fun for a bit, and like, yeah, it was fun for me for a bit, but it didn't last long. Like this stuff got old quick, and it cut it caught up with me because I had such that desire and that fire from a young age to escape who I was. And when I found something that worked, I couldn't stop. So I got to start on these pills. I got this other, I got this uh, shoebox full of pills. I don't tell this whole story to keep the 
other party anonymous uh-huh. but i ended up getting this whole box of pills i found out that the pills were got you got from a doctor and you got them from a doctor mainly because at that time like you had a surgery or you had an operation or something like that so i'm thinking in my mind like who's had that yeah and then i found some i found that and i was like yeah like let's make this happen right and um so i got this shoe box right so i was just eating these things every year i, I might have got a thousand um of them and I'm just eating them. And when I start start feeling a little unwell, I just have more. And it's not a big deal because I've got this big supply and I'm going to school, you know, but things started to snowball a little bit, man. Cause then I got introduced to cocaine too. Yeah. And I got introduced to cocaine. And it's one of the drugs that just honestly to me, it just never made any sense. And it <laughs> still does to this why is day. That? I'm like, why? Is that? Because it's just madness. I mean, you get you pay a fortune for it, it lasts for a little bit. And and it's ninety percent Tylenol or 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 others, you know, other stuff, and it's just terrible. And <laughs> to come down from it was just terrible. And I would I would consciously understand that, but the next day I would want more. Yeah, I mean that's addiction in a nutshell, yeah, I guess, yeah. right? But I would want more. But I was just like, this was just madness. Um, so I got introduced to that. So I'm da- I'm dabbling in that. I I linked up with an old buddy from like grade five and. He was, it was the the buddy just making things move around in town, right? It came over to a small suburb um, town, so it wasn't like it was, it was there was tons of options, yeah, for stuff. But I ended up getting all these pills, right? And then what happened is, you know, at this time, right, they're starting to figure out that, um, yeah, these pills are causing addiction, right? We all know the, yeah, we all probably know the story with that, right? They they don't cause addiction and stuff. And I had no idea, man. I'd be addicted, but when I ran out of that box. I started to feel what I know what I know now is withdrawal. I thought, ah, I just got a little bit of cold. But like, you know, eight hours, it was a little bit of a cold. Like 12 hours, I was like, oh, like that's a, you know, a bit of a cold. Then I'm up all night. And I'm like, ah, oh, shit, I, you know, I never had, I never stayed up all night before in my life, you know? Yeah. I never did that. Um, So I reached out to my buddy. I said, what the heck is going on? He's like, oh, it's withdrawal. You know, this was a veteran. This guy here was a veteran. He was a seasoned veteran with with addiction. And I was just sort of like the newbie, right? I was just, I had my own, my own box, you know, I was like, oh, the doctor, you know, gave it to that person. They're not taking it. You know, for me, it's, they would have taken it all. They would have been fine. So I'm, you know, where I'm at right now, I'm good, right? Wrong. I was really, really wrong. I had no idea that I was going to hit this intense withdrawal and this craving that just took over my mind and body. And, and I never experienced anything like it. I remember I was so bad. We had a bottle of orange brunettes, man. The stuff we used to buy it all the time, $8 a bottle. And I, I drank, I mixed it with orange juice, that entire bottle. And I just had to not feel the way I was feeling, man. I didn't know what to do. And I took that whole, I drank that thing with the orange juice, buddy. And I, I threw up, I thought for sure, like that my stomach was going to come out of my throat at the same time. You know what I mean? It was just, that's really when the insanity began. When the insanity began is when I, you know, that moment right there where at the time I had no idea, Pete, I had no idea. But when I look back, I'm like, yo, that's when, um, when it started, man, it went downhill from there for like a year. And then I got, I made the jump to heroin. Like most people did because they started to cut back on the pills. So uh, where I was getting them from and who I was getting them from and the price went through the roof, right? This Once is like they started right to around scale 2008, back. 2000, cause you got sober in, I guess, 2009, right? 
No, 2010. Okay, you got sober in 2010. So this is all yeah. like 2007, 2008, 2009. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Is, I guess is what I'm saying. Like they, they're harder to come yeah. by. Yeah, it's so expensive all of a sudden. So so you start to graduate or you graduate to heroin. How does that? It's the worst term in the world, by the way. But how does that? How does that go? Yeah. Like like in your life, how does it just race through your life and eat you up? Yeah, I mean, I had a buddy, my seasoned veteran buddy there, and, you know, we were all facing the same problem. And he's like, yo, this is where I'm at. And I'm like, let's get it, you know? I mean, let's try it out, right? But, I mean, you start out with it. Like, you know, I was a middle-class suburb fella, you know? I mean, this is not where I was supposed to end up. But it just swallowed me up, man. Swallowed me up, and I didn't share with anybody. And a lot of people around me had no idea what I was up to. No idea at all. Um, and I hung out and everybody I hung out with was not a drug addict. Yeah. It was the weirdest sort of thing. They were not drug addicts at all. So I had one fella, one fella. And um, I'll never forget, man, because I shared this on another podcast, but it was another part of the insanity is we would be, we'd be withdrawing and uh, we'd call up buddy and say, Hey, we got to get some more stuff. And it was, um, I never understood it, man, then. And I never understood it now, but buddy would say, get me a milkshake. Like, all right. So we were thought, you know, we were in the front of the car. He would always drive. I didn't have a car at the time. He would drive my girlfriend's car. She had a leased car. And then he would drive because he was the connect with Buddy. So Buddy would only deal with him type deal. And Buddy would say, bring me a milkshake. And I was, we would just be in the, I'd be in the front passenger seat just shaking. My legs are just shaking. I'm in withdrawal. I'm, I'm 200 degrees. I'm overheating and all the symptoms. And I'm thinking, man, we're going to get it soon, you know? And like six hours later, dude, insanity. We'd sit in the Sheets parking lot, not eat, kind of rest back, you know, in the worst neighborhood in Durham, North Carolina. I mean, the worst place where you need to be hanging out. And we'd wait like six hours and we would do this like four times a week, you know? And everybody's like, where are you at? Where are you at? You know, just lying. And then with milkshake, just melting all over our car. I'm like, why? We go to Sonic. That's where we get the milkshake from, too. We go to Sonic, the milkshake. And I'm like, dude, what does he want the milkshake for? <laughs> you know, there's nothing left to it. Why doesn't he show up and he can get a fresh milkshake? <laughs> Did he I ever take the milkshake? He always took the milkshake. <laughs> I don't know for what, though, Pete. I never know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it just took over, right? Like, it's just, I ended up, but you know, to make a long, long story short, I ended up losing everything, man. I got evicted from that apartment. I got put on ac- academic probation at school. Then I was kicked out. I was charged with another felony at 18. Um, this is where I learned another lesson of, of the law is guilty by association. Yeah. So I was with a guy, he entered a motor vehicle. Uh, it was about three o'clock in the morning and there was a guy walking his dog and he's like, Hey, what are you doing? And like, we went on as, as he said that. I saw the two blue lights and we were in this really small town, like maybe 5,000 people. Um, and we split and I was like, Oh man, we, you know, say by the bell, like we're going to be able to get away from this one. Called my girlfriend from a pool phone, you know, at the pool, they have the emergency phones. Yeah. We didn't have like the cell phones and all that. And I'm like, you got to come and grab us, man. And, um, so she did. And the radius we were, I mean, I could see the sign for the, for the boundary line of this little town. And um, the lights went on, man. And I was like, dang, you know, and, and I got arrested that night and I got bailed out. My brother bailed me out. It was like $5,000 bail. And then they left a charge off the off the paperwork or something, Pete. 
And um, the next morning, I because I, I was up late getting bailed out and stuff, I was at my parents' house at this time. And I have a younger brother. I remember I have my twin brother. And at this time, I have a younger brother. Very similar to my story, and, by the way. You're, 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 you're at the very end, and you have great parents. At least for me, I had a great parents. And, and, and I yeah. like always had a place to go. And that's where I, I my, my bottom was my parents' house, you know, at, at 33, after having a career and, and all this other stuff, I was back, back at home, just broke emotionally. Right. I mean, spiritually and, and financially, the whole thing bankrupt. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah. Same, same story. So I end up here and then this is my, my, bro my younger brother's getting ready for school. My stepdad's there. My mom's already at work. And um, cop, but my stepdad wakes me up. He's like, someone's here to see you. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, like. At this point in your life, there's never good news. Somebody's looking for you. <laughs> there's never, yeah, never good yeah. news. Yeah. Yeah. So I just remember this cop. He's sitting at the front door and he's like, yeah, I got to take you in. I was like, all right, can I get dressed? My parents had the. The entryway, it went up two levels, and then there was, like, the stairs up top. My bedroom was right around the corner, so I just kind of popped out. I'm like, oh, man, my my younger brother was there. And after that, I just knew I wasn't welcome at my folks' place anymore. I, they didn't even have to tell me. I, I just knew. I knew that was it. I, I saw the look on my stepdad's face, like, you know what? Um, Yeah, I was like, damn, you know, like, good dude, man. My mom, great. You know, and I, this happens in front of my my brother, you know, getting thrown in handcuffs, like it was like, holy smokes, you know, this is where it ended up. But uh, so I got arrested again, man. I get booked into the jail, more felonies, another bail. You know, my girlfriend at the time goes to her mom to get money because I've drained everybody, dude. Everybody's yeah. finances that I've drained. And my brother just put, you know, 750 the night before. I need now I need another 750. I'm trying to explain to him, like, dude, I was just arrested last night and all this stuff. Like, and the thing is, when you get up in the mix, man, it doesn't matter, you know? I mean, you're just, you're gonna, it just comes down the line, dude. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter unless you got a ton of money for a lawyer. And at this point, I didn't have anything. And I had to get another lawyer. My girlfriend's mom, like, paid like $2,000 or $4,000 for that, you know? Wow. And I'm just like, like feeling like crap, you know, I appreciate everybody's help. But at the same time, I was like, dude, like, I, you know, you got no self-esteem. I mean, that's how I was. You have no self-esteem. You, you continue to do shitty things to yourself and to everyone else around you. And that equals no self-esteem. And, and it equals, you know, just wanting off the planet or putting anything in your body that can make you feel like you might have self-esteem, a shred. Yeah. Or just to forget about. Yeah. Forget about everything, you know what I mean? Just to get out of it for a little bit. And um, so I still was staying with the girlfriend for a bit. I mean, but for time's sake, I was um, I was staying at her place for a bit, but we ended up splitting up and I was living at my buddy's place out of town. And then I ended up on methadone. So the heroin was taken over. I was selling cars a little bit in between there too. I was working at Michael Jordan Nissan. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a good and bad thing, right? Because I was making a little bit more cash, but I would spend my entire check. I remember they had this promo. It was when the gas was going up. Uh -huh. If you sold the minivan, SUV or a truck, they give you a thousand bucks on the spot. Like, wow, you know, gold mine for me. I sold two, <laughs> two of those in one day. Wow. And I got two dollars. I didn't have a bank account, so I go to Walmart. You pay three dollars at Walmart Dude, to I, cash I, both yep, checks. I used to cash, I used to cash. I worked for the <laughs> 76ers. I was the only person in the whole organization that got a live check because I needed to go to the bank and cash. Don't, don't give it, don't direct deposit. There is no direct deposit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
Exactly. Yeah. So you so go, I, you cash the check, Walmart. you get 2000 bucks at the Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a bunch of stuff like that. Right. And I mean, it would just, you know, this was my plan. Then another part of the insanity, right. I'd spend it all on dope and uh, I would stretch it out. Right. This is going, this will be a month's worth, Pete, a yeah. month, you know, and then a week or two later, buddy. I mean, it's gone, man. So I hit the spot with the heroin where it was like, it was, uh, it just snowballed so fast, buddy. I lost everything. And I, uh, I just Google searched, man, like how to deal with the withdrawal stuff. Methadone came up, buddy. I had no idea again. You know, I never knew about the pills. I never knew about the heroin. I was naive. And then I got on this methadone program, went to this clinic, buddy. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world, Pete. I gave him 12 bucks and um, they gave me the dose of methadone. And I was like, this is great. Like I didn't have the withdrawal. Um, and was on that for about eight months on the methadone. I went to them and I was like, I got to get off the methadone because the problem was, is I was still the same person. I was doing cocaine. I was drinking. I used to buy a 24 Keystone light from the food line across the room, across the road from my brother's place, hang out at the pool. I used to love the two for one deal on Marlboro menthols. When they first came out, they did the promo. Yeah. So I go to food line and I mean, for under $20, I had a party and I would try to find one of my buddies that was just kicking it. They were off work because all my buddies worked and they were productive and they were doing stuff and I was just not. But I could usually find somebody that would want to kick it and have the Keystone light <laughs> and um, smoke some cigarettes down at the pool. And, and that's what I would do. And I would just try to like I just couldn't live with myself. Like, I, you know what I mean? That was what it came down to. I, I just couldn't live with myself and. I was at my brother's place because I burned every other bridge and I was burning the bridge with him as well because I had to go to this methadone clinic every single day, 30 minutes there and 30 minutes back. And I was getting fired from every job and I needed $12 every day plus a little bit of money to for get gas. Back and forth. I had absolutely get back and forth and I had absolutely nothing. So my parents used to employ me in their backyard, but I, li I lived about a two hour walk away. So I'd have to walk over to their place in the middle of the, the summer and I would put in a couple hours of work. They pay me $10 an hour to do yard work so I could afford this methadone. So the problem was and I was doing cocaine and the beers and, you know, all the other madness. The problem was I just couldn't keep up anymore, dude. I was exhausted. I was exhausted from trying to live this life. And I was at my brother. He had a roommate. He had a two bedroom apartment. I lived on his couch. I lived on his floor. Because when he had people over, he didn't want me around. He was embarrassed. Yeah. So I'd stay in the bedroom or, you know, maybe go for a walk or like, you know, walk around the apartment complex and just look at people smiling and stuff and be like, well, fuck, like, where the hell did I go wrong? Like, I haven't felt that shit in years. And um, I woke up, though. I had this spiritual, I call it a spiritual experience, man. I'm not like a religious fellow. Um, but I had this spiritual experience, experience where these thoughts entered my mind that I'd never really experienced before. And it was like, dude, you, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is the way this is going to play out. The drugs are going to kill you. You're going to kill you or you're going to try to get sober. And I was like, sober? What the hell is sober? I didn't know any sober people. I'm like, you know, like sober. I don't know, I guess. And and um, I picked up the phone, called my grandparents in Canada. I said, I'm on methadone and I'm on this other shit. And I'm like, I didn't even want to bother them. You know, they're like retired and that was their world. You know, now it's like, now look where I'm at, you yeah. know, what did he do? And um, they drove down the next day and they found a detox center for me in Florida. We went down to Florida. I went to this detox for seven days, came out to methadone, everything else, everything cold turkey. And it was hell on earth. Like it was, it was a great place though to go. Like it was so supportive and 
you know, that type of stuff. I mean, wasn't a cheap spot. I'll, I'll tell you that. Right. But I'm a million dollar man. So I wouldn't, <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be any different. I wouldn't expect any different, but I got off everything, man. And then I, uh, you know, just to kind of speed up the story there, my grandparents were like, Hey, there's too much shit going on here. Why don't you come back to Canada? Which let's try to start your life over. I, you know, they came over at six, six o'clock in the morning. One day I packed up what I owned, which was, no more than three shoe boxes worth of clothes yeah. hadn't been washed. You know, I only thing I had in the fridge was condiments. You know, that's yeah. the way I was living. Um, and when I look back, I didn't see anything wrong with it, Pete. I was like used to that life. And I'm like, man, that's so scary. Mm. I didn't see anything wrong with it. So I moved up here to Canada with them. I got a job. I got off the drugs, man. That was never a problem for me again. But I was drinking beer dang near every day. You know, because I wasn't working on myself. I was going to meetings here and there. Uh -huh. Um, you know, but it was heavy, man. Coming off that methadone cold turkey, but it wrecked me. It wrecked me. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep for like months. Did you I drink didn't feel to take right. the pain away? I mean, like, is that something when you're going through that withdrawal off the methadone? Are you still like, hey, I'm gonna yeah. have a couple beers? But that's like a, a brick in the fucking Grand Canyon, I would imagine, right? Like, I'm gonna have a couple beers, but this is so the pain is so sharp coming off that that there's really no. There's nothing you can do but just gut it out. Yeah. I mean, at first I didn't. It didn't start up for a while because I didn't have any money, right? Uh -huh. So until I got this job. <laughs> so like the first couple months, I would have the occasional one. You know, it wasn't something I was craving. But then I got into that routine, man. I was working this painting job and we'd be on the, you know, and then the boys were drinking and I started drinking. And then I was just like, yo, my life is so shit. I'm living with my grandparents. Like I'm working this painting job. Like it was great. I had a, it was a great job. I got a great opportunity. Like I wasn't making boatloads of money, but somebody gave me a shot. And you're showing up to work. I had no friends. I was showing up to work. I had no friends. I had no car. You know, I was I uh you know was missing my folks back home. I was trying to figure out what I was gonna do with my life. About nine months into living up here, I go back to visit my folks. Um, this girlfriend and I too, we reconnected, you know, my brothers and stuff. I want to go back and see everybody. And, um, when I, when I, I got it, it was a two, uh, it was a layover flight. I land, when I went to Toronto for the airport, the, the immigration, they were asking me a million questions. Scott ID got this mom, this mom. I said, dude, I, yeah, it was really weird. Right. Pete red flags. My yeah. stomach was just in nuts, and I was like, something's up, but I'm going to go through with it. I'm going to go, you know, through with it anyway. I wanted to see my folks. I wanted to see this girl. I was like, you know, whatever. We'll see what happens. We'll we'll cross that bridge if something <laughs> comes up. I get a layover in New York. Nothing, man. Nobody. I thought maybe the cops would be there. Somebody want to talk to me or something. And there was nothing. So I'm like, I'm good. Then I landed in North Carolina. And um, there was about five police officers at the end of, you know, where you get off your plane, right? They got my picture and stuff there. And I said, oh, well. There's your answer, buddy. And I was charged then with six. It was it was six counts of drug trafficking. So what had happened is years prior, I sold narcotics to an undercover police officer that my friend introduced me to. Um, and now it was just catching up with me. And what happened? So you go, you go, <laughs> you're you're back, you're back in jail in North Carolina again. Yeah, so I'm back in jail, and I've already got that one felony conviction. I've got those misdemeanor convictions from before. So it all works on a point system. I mean, the more points you rack up, then, you know, these are, this is where you, you fall with the rights. So this is serious business. I mean, my foot, my parents directly were like, no support. We're not hiring a lawyer or nothing. My grandparents, my aunt, my uncle up in Canada came through um, to get me this attorney that 
was a boatload of cash, man. It was just a boatload of cash. At this that, point, you know, time, sometimes you shown your grandparents some flashes, though. Like, hey, like you, you, you've shown uh, you were probably in better spirits yeah. being around there. You're off heroin, so you've given people a, a reason to believe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the way my grandparents were. I mean, even if I was like, no matter where I was at, they would okay. probably still believe. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would always. And I think a lot of people did, right? Like even my mom too. Like I think they always had the hope that I would find a way out. Yeah, I get arrested for this, man. And there was a pivotal, pivotal moment there um, where this girl that was picking me up that I had just let down so many times in life. She was picking me up and I was getting like handcuffed and searched and everything like in front of the airport. I'm like, Jesus this Christ. doesn't feel and, yeah. yeah, and I'm like, this can't be real. And I didn't understand how serious this was. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were serious, serious charges. Like 20 years, I was facing 25 years for these charges. And I mean, I was guilty as guilty can be. I sold drugs to an undercover police officer. Like, there's no, you know what I mean? There's yeah. no swindling. <laughs> there's no, nothing out of that, right? That's just clear as day. So she drives by, <clears throat> and I can see her. She's smiling ear to ear. And, um, she didn't see me. She didn't see me. Obviously, that's not what she was expecting. Yeah. And um, it just hit me again, man. It was another like spiritual thing, right? Where I was like, it just, I, these thoughts just came in. And it was like, and I gave them attention. Most times I would just dismiss stuff, yeah. but I gave them a little bit of attention. And it was like, dude, you got to quit <clears throat> letting yourself and everybody down. I was like, holy shit. You know, it, it hit me friggin' hit me and I was like, that's right. And um yeah, so they booked me into the jail. There was no interrogation or anything that needed to take place, right? <laughs> Guilty as charged, pretty much. So they booked me into to the jail. And um I was in the jail for eight months while I waited to go to court. So they had my folks had hired this attorney. And um I was ha- I would have to plead guilty to these charges, but we had to find a way um, because what they were, what they initially were trying to paint the picture of is that I was a drug dealer. And that was, that was honestly never the case. Yes. I was, a, I was someone who struggled with substance use disorder mm-hmm. and, um, and they called me and asked me to sell them stuff. And I wasn't even really doing stuff at the time, but I always had this desire to be part of something and have a purpose in life. And literally that's what it was. It was, I think it was, the deals were about a $200 profit, you yeah. know, and, um, it wasn't like this. Yeah, so that's that story. Um, so I'll never forget the day, man. But after eight months, we finally got our thing in court. My lawyer come. I know I heard from my lawyer a handful of times, dude. Like I think he came in twice in eight months. Like, all right, well, I'm just trusting this. I'm just trusting this guy. Um, How are you feeling, by the way? So, eight months. You're not. I'm. I'm guessing you're. You're clean and sober in jail. Are you starting to feel like, yeah, somewhat human, right? Yeah, you know what the weirdest thing? Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I really got plugged in, man. I really got plugged into fellowship groups. I took all the college courses they offered. I didn't really need yeah, to do it, yeah. but I just tried to be, you know, I just try to be of use, some sort of use. I used to play chess all the time with the old timers. Literally, I'd walk like, I don't know, four, five, five hours, dude, in circles. I mean, yeah. it's kind of crazy, right, when you think about it, but. You literally just walk and I would just talk with the old boys. You know what I mean? I would just try to pick up on like, you know, how can I avoid it? You know, because a lot of people in jail will try to, you know, teach you from where they went wrong. Like a lot of people in jail 
realize they went wrong. There's some people who they just don't give a crap, you know? And I was just like, no, I'm not hanging out with them. I would sometimes, but like not, it's not like my main thing just for entertainment. But I was trying to hang out with the older boys and like try to pick up something and learn something. And, you know, I go to church services and they need volunteers to do the painting or anything. I would say, yeah, like I'm your guy. Like just, you don't have to pay me any money. You don't have to do nothing. Like just let me, just let me be helpful. Yeah. And, um, so you're in a, so you're yeah, in a, so the, the reason I ask you, so you're in a pretty good headspace when you get to this, this eight month passes and, and you, and you go to trial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was pretty good. Like I was hopeful, you know, I kind of gave up the outcome, like however it plays out was, it is what it is, you know, I'll do my part and um, that's all I can do, you know, that type deal, but it was all right. I mean, there were hard times. Like obviously you miss, you know, being outside of jail and, and enjoying Christmas with your folks and in birthdays and, you know, stuff like that. Right. You miss the rain. You can't go, you know, if it's raining out, they close down the yard. So you can't no. do, you know, anything like that. Yeah. You, you kind of miss food, you know, you, you know, I mean, it, it's not the greatest food, right? There's no chef probably cooking up this stuff. So, so you do miss some of that when you go to trial. Yeah, so we we hadn't come up, we hadn't gotten a plea with the DA, right? So yeah. they wouldn't agree on it. We were looking for six to eight months, like a time served at this point. And like I said, it was about 25 years I was looking at. But what the lawyer was able to do over those eight months was able to get all the paperwork for every intervention and every treatment thing that I had done over the years. And I mean, he had stacks. I mean, this shit was stacked up of these binders that obviously nobody was going to read through, but we had to build the case that like, I wasn't this sort of drug Lord or whatever. And you know, they didn't think, I don't think they really thought that, but they wanted to make sure. And then, so he comes in to talk to me and he's like, look, I can't get the DA to agree on the the six to eight months, you know? So this is our other option. Um, We got to leave it up to the judge. It's five. It's like four 30 on a Friday. And, um, I'm like, so it just, he's going to just decide right now, like 25 years or eight months. And he's like, yeah, that's what we can do. Um, or like we can continue it again and try to, you know, but I think this is the best play. And I'm like, like, buddy, like, I hope this is the best play. You know what I mean? Like I need this to be the best play. And I walked into the courtroom and you're shackled at your feet there. And I look in the courtroom, it's my mom and my, my twin brother. And that was a whole another story, but it's just kind of weird at the end of all the running and gunning and the fun and the parties and the playing around and the buddies and everybody you thought you were close with and cool with. It's just going to be your folks at the end of the day. You know, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, they'll still be there. And um, they were there. So he the guy sits back in his chair, the the judge, the guy, the judge sits back in his chair. The lawyer and the DA go up to the desk there. They talk with him for. Two minutes. I mean, it's not like TV where this is like a full day thing. Yeah. Two minutes. They come back. They ask me to stand up. Hey, um, do you plead guilty to all these charges? And I'm like, yeah, like <sighs> I, I did it, you know, and I'm like, shit, man. Like the judge listens to what I have to say. And they're just like, oh, you weren't coerced or promised any anything. And I'm like, no, nobody promised anything. So you just go through that. And then the judge, yeah, he sits back in his chair, takes off his glasses, puts them on the desk, rubs his eyes. And I'm thinking like, oh, man, like, buddy's going to be having a steak in 45 minutes yeah. and I'm going to be gone to this penitentiary for the next 10 years. And, you know, I mean, I was like, if there's anything out there, Pete, if there's anyone <laughs> out there 
please, like, I'll be good, yeah. you know? And I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm just thinking like, eh, you know, and then I kind of had this peace come over me, man. Like, it is what it is. You know, it is what it is. And he sat, yeah, he sat back up in that chair and he said, six to eight months, Department of Corrections. And I said, holy shit. Like, I just dodged a bullet, man. Like, literally. And um, after that, that part of the plea deal, too, is I plead guilty to all the felonies. Since I only held a green card in the U.S., I would be deported back to Canada. Okay. So then I, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement picked me up a couple of days later. And I actually spent another four months being transferred from different jails around the country before they sent me back on a one-way flight to Toronto. (laughs) And you get back to Toronto and and do you embrace a life of sobriety? Yeah, I get back to Toronto and now I'm thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Right. It was the best thing that ever happened to me because why it was is because going back there, it's where everything was crazy and chaotic. The door was closed. That chapter was over. It was over. And now I had a chance to build a new life. You know, a new life that I didn't know I would be proud of. But yeah, I had a chance to do that. So I always wanted to try to help people. I was like, maybe I can help people with my story. What vehicle could I use to do that? And I was like, I can be a counselor. So I looked up at the college, the college here in town, and they had a program. I said, shit. I said, maybe I can go to college I said, crazy idea but i signed up i got in for the for the course right i got in for this course to be a counselor i graduated this was a full-time course so it was like nine to five monday to friday um and i used to i used to flip burgers in the evening at this uh pub at this restaurant and um and i mean i w- when i got sober that's my sober date there january 11 2010 buddy when i when I got that, that was, you know, that was it, man. I just threw up my hands and I said, you know, I mean, there's a lot I can control with myself here, but that's not one, man. And um, so I went back to school and then I got this, uh, I got this uh, internship at this drug treatment center here in Ontario. And then they hired me afterwards. And I, uh, I worked there for six years, man, as a clinical caseworker. So I got to try to help people and uh, man, I loved it. You know, it was great. And then the fentanyl hit and, um, it was hard, man. I couldn't do it anymore. After really? a while, we were losing you know, 14, 15, 16-year-olds on McDonald's toilets, and um, I couldn't do it. And so then and then what, what happens? Then you're like, okay, I want to start up. Because I know you, you're involved marketing, digital marketing, and, and then you, you get yeah. into – you start up sober motivation and all these you – know, you're, you're doing several different things. Yeah, so then I uh, – yeah, I mean, this is a whole nother long story, Pete, but I'll yeah. keep it super short because yeah, I know yeah. where I know we're running right <laughs> over yeah, time. Yeah. Um, but I, I went into work on a Sunday. My wife was pregnant with our first daughter, and I went into work on a Sunday morning, and I was full of anxiety. was taking over my body. I couldn't do it. I felt like these guys that were passing away, um, I was their caseworker for two of them. And I just was like, fuck, like, am I supposed to be doing this? Like, I don't know. If, like I can handle getting that news again. And yeah, it was just, it was just a lot. Right. So I said, I got to do something else. And I had always been a visionary. I always wanted to like be an entrepreneur type deal. I didn't know much about it, but I said like, maybe I can do something else and I can have a better schedule, you know, and I can, I don't know, maybe do something bigger. Right. I was honestly tapped out for finances at this position. Um, and I was like, I want to do more, but like with my education too, like it's just sad, but, but more times than not, if you want to get into social work and you want to help people, 
I mean, it's tight. You know, budgets are tight, yeah. right? And it's hard and at to this point, you, have two you know kids. make a big. Sound. You just mentioned that was the birth of your oh, second had... kid. Yeah. No, the first one. First, first one, okay, my okay. first dog. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I just quit, man. That morning, I just put in my my resignation. I slid it in my boxes, my boss's box. I told the boys I worked with, I said, boys, it's been fun, but I can't, I literally can't do another hour at this job. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's when I started everything, man. I started sharing my story. I started a Facebook group. I started to like, dude, I used to push my lawnmower up and down the street and cut grass. I used to wash cars. I used to clean hoarding houses. Um, I t- kind of made a commitment then that um, I'll never work another job. <laughs> as <laughs> weird it, as it was. How does it feel today? With the, with the great success that you're able to have and experience and to share this message, you are able to touch millions of people through your platforms and, and carry a message of sobriety. Like, what does that, when you stop and you think about all the people that you have helped, what, what does that do for you? What does that, how, do, how does that make you feel? It's good. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think anybody would be like, yeah, I mean, it it feels, it feels good. You know, it feels like a difference. You know, for people feels like making it too humble. It's a huge difference. I got one question for you, a couple more things, but what do you tell, what do you tell person? I mean, you're, you're a counselor too, and that's, you can always flex that muscle, right? And you have your own experience. So you've got education, right? Higher learning. And you've got your experience, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the highest of learning. What do you tell somebody that, that can't get one day sober that says, fuck it, I'm out. I, I can't, I can't do this. This is too hard. You got to get connected. You got to get connected with other people who are, who are doing it right. Like I look at it as like, if you want to be a football player, basketball player, you're going to hang out with other football players, basketball players. You're not going to hang out on the volleyball court. And you got to start running with those people that are doing it. And a lot of people too, they say in success, right? Show me your five closest people and I'll show you your future. Yeah. Same goes for sobriety. Literally, if you show me the five people you're running with, I'll make a pretty decent guess about this is going to work out for you. Yeah. And become vulnerable because if you want to, if you want to create connection, you have to be vulnerable. So talk with people about what's actually going on with you and not all the other, you know, noise. And create true and real connections based on vulnerability that you can feel like, hey, you matter. And uh, and get plugged into some type of support group, whether it's a fellowship, whether it's your, your local church group, whether it's an online community. You got to get on board with other people that are on the journey. And when you talk with them, they, they're like, yeah, like Pete and I. I'm like, yeah, Pete, I get it. Pete's yeah. when he hears me, he's like, I get yeah, it. I get, we get it. Yeah. You know, we've 100%. been there yeah. and, and that connection, it just, it just helps us get another day. I mean, for me personally, I'm just like, yo, like I feel heard and stuff today. I, you know, no problem, dude. I get another day. No question. Yeah. Let you me know? ask you um, one more thing. Just going around the horn. Where, where can people find you? I'll put all the stuff in the show notes, but you have a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just on Instagram, I think is the best if you just want to look up sober motivation uh-huh. and you can find uh, find me there and send me a message and uh, you know I get back to dang your every message yeah. um, myself. So you're the best. Hey, I yeah, want to tell, tell you something too. So, like I am coming off. So my brother is it was sober. He just died last week, a 52 cancer, right? But he was he died sober like 13 years, um, and he 
was a big part of me getting this thing. And I saw this on the calendar with you today. And I was like, I know that that's going to make me feel better. And a hundred percent it has. And like, I just, you know, and that's what sobriety does and connection does sitting here with you. I laughed. I felt the connection, the heartfelt connection that, that one sober person does to another. And you inspired me and gave me hope. And I know too, what you're doing, my brother would have loved, you know, I, I, my brother probably has one message for me and that's to carry the message. Right. And I can make him proud by doing that. Um, so, I mean, I'd be remiss. You talk about, you just said, talk about what's going on with you. Like that's, what's going on with me. And I'm sitting in front of another alcoholic and it's certainly worth sharing another, another sober person. So I, I appreciate what you did for me today. And it's a, it's a clear message of service. You know, your service today took me out of myself and helped me. So I want to give you a big, a big thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Same to you, man. I'm sorry to hear that about your brother. Yeah, he was a great, he was, he was a great sober guy. He lived in a, in Hermosa beach in California. I'm going to do a whole nother podcast about him, but yeah, he's, he's, he's a terrific guy. Um, do you, are you a Raptors fan or a Blue Jays fan? No, not really. I only watch hockey. Carolina oh, really? Hurricanes. That's it. That's, <laughs> I have three kids now. Three okay, now. You have three now. So like, okay. even, yeah, I have three now. So even to get, get in the hockey games, but my wife, yeah, I mean, that's pushing it, right? Yeah. To, 82 games plus the playoffs. So I don't have time for, I'll, I'll, I'll check out a game. Yeah. You know, I like the environments and stuff, but yeah, yeah I don't have any time. All right. Well, dude, any, any. I will let you get back to your busy life, Brad. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time and doing this with yeah. me. I've been circling you for a while and to nail you down and to do this, uh, it means a lot. So, and, and what you're doing, honestly, like you said on Instagram, just every, you know, sometimes I think social media is a lot and then I get, you know, messages like yours that come through on your feed, um, it, my feed, it really helps me. So I appreciate it, dude. Thanks, Pete. All Pleasure, right. buddy. Yeah, man, you're the Good. man, Brad. Appreciate it, dude. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza. And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.